value out of that information. This causes me to feel like curation is partly about, it's not just making choices for others to enjoy, as the dictionary would suggest, it's about making a statement. Welcome to Education X.0, where we dissect, analyze, and discuss education in its current form and how it can evolve to better service in the future. I'm Leslie Wake-Webster, a former teacher and graduate of Princeton University's teacher preparation program, and I am now a sitcom writer living and working in Los Angeles. And I'm A.J. Webster. I am an educator who spends his days thinking about how to change education for the future and how to serve kids today. I started um, the Sycamore School, which was a revolutionary elementary school in Malibu, California. Today's topic, curation and how it relates to education. And with us today is our good friend, Peter Schlosser, who's been doing music and sound and all that good stuff, production for us, and he's going to join the conversation today. Hi, I'm Peter Schlosser. I'm a composer working in television, video games, and film. I graduated from Berklee College of Music in Boston, and some of my credits include shows like Light as a Feather and the video game Destiny 2. And you're a parent. And I am a parent of two girls, uh, 11 and almost 14. So middle school and high school. All right, and today we are talking about the idea of curation as it relates to education. Online dictionary, Macmillan, to curate is to select items from among a large number of possibilities for other people to consume and enjoy, applied to many areas including music, design, fashion, and especially digital media. Everyone engages in curation. It's a natural human impulse. Even as kids, we have collections. So when I was a kid, I had a bottle cap collection, and I kept it in a wooden box that my dad made me, and I collected beer bottle caps and soda bottle caps and all different kind of bottle caps. When you opened that box, it smelled like beer. It wafted <laughs> beer out, and I kept it in my closet. And I always thought I would make a big board and drill holes in it to put my bottle caps to display. I never did that, but I even went so far as to go to flea markets, and I remember buying old antique Coke bottles that had cork lining in them. And so I had this big thing, and, you know, I'd try and get perfect-looking bottle caps. So that was a collection I had as a kid. Did you have any collections when you were a kid? Last? I did. I had. Uh, I went through the late 80s sticker collection Oh, phase. I had that too, yeah. And Trapper it, Keeper full of stickers? Uh, I had a special sticker book. Okay. So it was, it was made for that purpose, and... <laughs> It had sort of like glossy laminated pages so that you could put a sticker down and lift it back up. And different pages were for different types of stickers. So there was scratch and sniff, which was a big deal. Puffy stickers was a big deal. Mm -hmm. There were some very fancy ones that you could only buy at the Hallmark store. And you know, I would very like greedily trade those with my friends. What was the name of the, the designer? She made the rainbow unicorn bubble. Lisa yeah. Frank, something like that. But stickers were a big deal, and there was one page that was like your best of, like your proudest gallery of stickers. And my favorites, and usually most expensive stickers, are the ones that I'd had to trade the most for. And my sister drove a hard bargain. <laughs> so if I had to pay like four hologram stickers for this one sticker, it would go on my best of page. And was that page at the beginning of your book or at the end of the book? Uh, weirdly, it was at the middle. It was like right in the middle. But it would have made more sense for it to be at the beginning or the end, I oh. agree. Peter, do you have any collections? I did. I had, very briefly, when I lived in Panama, I had a baseball card collection. We had a 7-Eleven that was close to us, and the thing was to go and get Slurpees and refill them in the store when the guy wasn't looking. <laughs> and, and buying baseball cards. And I didn't really have any idea about baseball cards. I just bought them. Then later on, a friend of my dad's encouraged me to collect paper bills from around the world. Uh, and I still have those. 
They're in a folder, and it's in alphabetical order and whatnot. But you've got them organized in a, yeah. a way? So people are natural curators. Right. That's what we're doing as kids when we're organizing our collections. Um, our goal in education is to highlight this skill and make it intentional. So let's talk about an example of this in the classroom. One task might be curate a list of resources on the American Revolution. So there's a lot of information out there. If you just list every book, every podcast, every documentary on the subject, it's not very helpful. It's more of an information dump. You're just piling everything into a big pile, and it doesn't help anyone. You have to know what you're looking for and make some choices. Exactly. Curation is not rote learning. It's active. You have to understand, analyze, evaluate, and potentially create something around what you're uh, curating. Which are all levels of Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with it, in 1956, a group of educators led by Benjamin Bloom came up with this framework to describe different goals of learning. It kind of looks like the nutrition pyramid with grains on the bottom and fats on the top. So the lowest level is recognizing and remembering. That's the the basic level of the, the pyramid. Above that are increasingly complex skills, understanding, applying, analyzing, evaluating. Eventually, at the top is creating something. So in our hypothetical history class, the bottom level of Bloom's taxonomy might be recognize a picture of Alexander Hamilton. Then as you're moving up, summarize his views, critique his arguments. And then if you're all the way to the top of the pyramid, write a musical which interrogates his legacy. And aren't we all glad that we didn't have to compete with Lin-Manuel Miranda and AP history? (laughs) Creating doesn't have to be epic in scope. When you curate, whether it's a list of resources or a set of paintings, you're taking an overabundance of disorganized, random information and creating structure, and that creates value out of that information. Right. You can't curate something if you don't understand it. I mean, I can go into the Getty and pick five paintings to display and call it my collection, but if I can't tell you why I picked them and how they relate to each other and to the art world at large, I I haven't curated. That's right. Curation is about adding your understanding to the conversation about a topic. It's inherently student-centered. Because the student is becoming a creator and they're actually contributing to the dialogue about the subject. Yeah, an easy real-life example is how people curate their music collections. The music you choose to display uh, makes a statement about what you think is good music and what your taste is. You know, in college, and this is no, this can't be true anymore, but I remember everyone had their CDs racked out in some way, so you could walk into anyone's college dorm room and get a sense of what their music was. And everyone had Bob Marley Legend, and everyone had the Eagles' Greatest Hits, and, you know, it was the era of um, Columbia House where you could get 12 for a penny and then have to right. fill out. But, <laughs> but it was a thing that you could reliably count on going into someone's room and seeing a curated, like, hey, is this a person who cares about the same music I care about? Then the portable version of that when you went on a trip was the small CD wallets. Right. And it's, you know, it would be like, oh, here's my CD wallet. Check out how cool I am because I have whatever, whatever yeah. it is. So that was another extension of that. Right, right. Or a mixtape. Given all the music in the world, you made a choice to group these songs to send a message. Usually it's, I love you. But sometimes it's, please take me back, I love you. Point is, you're making choices about what's in and what's out. In the face of information saturation, students have to distinguish relevant from irrelevant. Uh, How does this connect to what I already know? Do I see new patterns? There's a lot of critical thinking. So Jennifer Gonzalez has some great insights into this on her website, The Cult of Pedagogy. Let's talk about the tools needed to curate. Once you've gathered data and have knowledge of the field, you're going to need to organize and sort. The fancy word for that, which we heard earlier, is taxonomy. So taxonomy is the process of classifying and naming things, such as animals and plants, into different groups within a bigger system according to their differences or similarities. 
Taxonomy is one of the toolkits that we taught the kids at the Sycamore School. Like all of our toolkits, it's intended to make a process visible and intentional. So what are the tools if I want to get my taxonomy on? That's how all the scientists say it. Let's get our taxonomy on. Uh, It starts with making observations, determining what is essential, clustering, naming, reviewing and reflecting, formalizing, and finally making predictions. Um, Well, I remember your first and second graders at the Sycamore School did a project where they designed shoes, and that began with taking off their shoes and engaging in taxonomy. Yes, and we'll link to the blog where we talked about that. It's a really cute project, and the kids were so excited about it. Yes, they made observations. These shoes are colorful. These shoes have thick treads. This one has no toes. Then they debated what was essential. Yes, this one shoe has glitter on it. Is that an essential difference in these shoe types? Or is it, you know, under another category like color or texture? Uh, Then they clustered. I remember seeing a blog post with groups of shoes, like different piles of shoes on the floor. They named, they named each group, so there were athletic shoes or play shoes, shoes that comfort your feet. <laughs> right, yes, cozy, your cozies. Um, and naming re- leads to reflection. You might decide a name isn't accurate, and that causes you to dissolve a group or merge two groups. Discussion is a crucial part of the taxonomy process. Let's say you present students with a bunch of shapes to teach geometry. Sort them out. You don't have to say, triangles are three-sided and squares are four-sided and rectangles and squares are the same but different. You could... You could give them these things, have them sort them out, and then have them describe what they're seeing in these groups, giving them the opportunity to create some categories and make, make sense for themselves. And what, what's great about that is that you're empowering them, right? Which I think is the really the, one of the most important things to, to have them be inspired to learn rather than here's a bunch of information. Next, yeah, I'm going to ask you about it in about a week and you better remember all of it. Right. That's the education 1.0 we're trying to get away from, right? Is that idea that I issue it to you and you just are an empty vessel. I fill you up and you regurgitate it out later. Um, it's much more of a constructivist learning how to learn and creating your own meaning, which is much stickier, much more powerful. And I love what you said about empowering them, Peter. That's exactly right. And I think in part of the taxonomy process, as we're imagining this, is that there is a, a teacher, a facilitator, someone there helping discuss the choices and the, the framing of things. So if someone is putting things into pointy versus soft categories, that's an opportunity to talk about angles, mm-hmm. you know, or vertices. Yeah. And you, that's a, like, and because that person made that choice, it's not a wrong choice, but now let's name it, let's describe it. And even if there is a, a, a quote-unquote wrong choice somewhere, that's a chance to address misconceptions. And that's one of the things that so often gets glossed over is the kid puts the squares and the triangles in the same group and you go, oh no, that's wrong. You steal from them the opportunity to learn, first of all. Second of all, you don't do anything to address their deeper understanding. You basically are saying, there's a rule for school, and then there's the rule that you know to be true, that you'll use in your life. So reflection allows for finding patterns and creating new connections. I can see how that makes someone a contributor, how it it adds value. And bringing it back to curation, the important thing isn't just sorting, it's being able to explain why you made the choices that you made. You're presenting a body of knowledge for someone else's consumption, and there's a message attached. Sometimes it's simple. These are the most important things to know about prohibition in the United States. And sometimes it's more subtle. We see a lot of this on digital social media. A lot of people curate their photos to present a certain image or brand about themselves. Peter, do you do Instagram? I do Instagram, yes. Uh, Well, part of why I do Instagram, and it's, it's... it's hard to quantify for what I do as a composer because I, I, I want to put myself out there as an artist and I also do it as a way to, to be on 
people that I want to work with on their periphery and, you know, if they follow me or I follow them or sort of make some sort of engagement with them and comment on their picture. And so sometimes it's silly things like, uh, you know, the other day I took a picture of what my desk, what my workspace looks like. And so I try to involve other people and say, hey, show me your desk, you know, what your desk looks like, whatever that is, whether oh, you're a, an artist or a writer or whether you're, you work at a you know, doctor's office or whatever it is. So, so making specific choices about what you're putting out there, like right. it's not haphazard. It's not just like, hey, I'm walking down the street. Here's a dog or whatever. I no, guess that's curation too. Yeah, I mean, there are there's plenty of people who do that. Yeah, who you know, they they blog every moment of their life, and somehow they get you know millions of followers. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to ask my daughters about that. But yeah, mine is very specific to to what I do. Both as as a composer, there's also parts of it that I'm passionate about, like working out, that seem to inspire other people to, you know, move. And space. You and are space. a space enthusiast. I am a space nerd, so there's part of that, yeah. One of the things, I think it was, I think, Peter, you were the one who said it when we first started talking about this, about the first in your life, the first thing that you choose to put out there is when you first start dressing yourself. That was Peter. I yeah. thought it was Peter, yeah. When you first start putting on clothes. like right. What what made you think of that? You become conscious of it as a parent, and, and, and especially now that I see other friends that are having kids, and they go, "Oh, they dress." This is the first time they dress themselves, and so they start making their own choices about what they want to put out in the world, what they think is cool, what, whether it, this pleases other people, which at that age I don't think is the case. Right. But it's whatever they whatever they identify with, and whatever makes them, I don't know, happy. I guess in the moment. So it's an interesting. Uh, rite of passage of going, this is what I'm going to wear and I'm making this choice and it's my own and nobody else. Yeah, we had a kindergartner last year who every single day wore a pair of uh, leopard spotted stretch pants. It was her favorite thing <laughs> and she would wear it every day. And you said mom had to wash them all the time. Yeah, had to wash them every night, yeah, yeah. just because that was the only thing she would wear. This causes me to feel like curation is partly about, it's not just making choices for others to enjoy as the dictionary would suggest, it's about making a statement. Mm. And sometimes we're aware of what that statement is, and sometimes it's unconscious. But, you know, the statement for, when I think of a little kid in their superhero t-shirt or their leopard leggings, like, the statement might be, I'm a leopard, and I don't give a crap what you say. Yeah. Or, you know. Well, it's also, I think there's a lot of different things, right? It's for other people to enjoy. It's making a statement. It's also to tell a story, mm -hmm. right? So when you're curating in a museum, you're, you're setting up a narrative of some sort, even if right. it's not... Strictly speaking, you know, uh, rising to a climax narrative, you're, you're telling some story about these artifacts. So let's put this all together. Curation is a skill that's got a lot of layers and has social currency. How can teachers capitalize on this in a classroom? So, Peter, you had an idea on how a teacher could use this to do an Instagram-like project. The idea was to maybe think about, you know, what would it look like if you were Vasco da Gama and you had to create an Instagram account for yourself as Vasco da Gama. So what are your motivations who is your audience? Um, what will you present in your Instagram in terms of, you know, where are you going and how are you going to get there? And What do you see along the way? So there's a lot of critical thinking about, at the base level, you have to understand his journey, but then you have to put yourself in those shoes and think about what kinds of things might have been important and who he's communicating with. And that includes, you know, where he was from and who was funding his trips and where, you know, where do you live and what is the geography in relation to where he's going, et cetera, et cetera. You could also flip that on its head and look at his arrival in India from the perspective of the people when he's arriving. So what do those people see and what's their experience of this? Right. Or I, I think on the voyage back, half his crew died 
And so the experience of someone who's on one of those ships, there's, there's a number of points of entry in terms of what you think Vasco da Gama might have been focusing on. There are people who Instagram everything they eat. That could be fun. And that, again, brings it back to the ability to be student-centered, is allowing students to bring their points of view. And, you know, as an educator, you nudge them and you say, hey, we could, I also want to see the posts of the, you know, the people who work for him or the people he encounters. Allowing students to think about other perspectives is really good. I think it's also a a vehicle to make them think of, will he present only the best parts of the trip? Or is he going to be honest and say, oh, we had a really hard time with X, Y, and Z? And does that include the perspective somewhat of the people that he is going to visit, which might be good or not that good. So you have Vasco da Gama as influencer. Right. In addition to Instagram, there are a lot of simple, easy-to-use tools that are available for creation. I think the most popular and probably the most widely known is Pinterest. Right. There's also the website Wakelet, which is no relation to me, Leslie Wake Webster. And there are good resources on common sense media under digital curation. So that's all the time we have for today to talk about this topic. For further reading, check out some of the websites we discussed today, including the blog for the Sycamore School about the first and second graders designing shoes. You can also find a link to them, plus suggestions for further reading at educationx.com. That's education, the letter X, P-O-I-N-T, the number zero, dot com. Thanks to Peter Schlosser, our sound editor, producer, and the composer of our theme music. You can check out his music at paxmusic.com. That's www.paxmusic.com. 